coming up this hour, a new survey out about how many people are planning to return to church in person. And then we're going to be joined by Watson Jones, the senior pastor of Compassion Baptist Church right here in Chicago. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, glad to have you with us on a yet another beautiful day here, another beautiful spring day. Uh, we are glad to have you with us, and I am not I am not by myself today, but coming back for a second day in a row, they let him back in the door, and he decided to come. It's a complete <laughs> win-win. That is Steve Coble. Steve, man, thanks for coming back. Thanks, thanks for having me. I wasn't sure if they knew who I was when I pressed the... Uh, the button to get in here. <laughs> They're like, who's this guy trying to sell stuff? <laughs> Steve is the uh, teaching pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago, has joined us now a couple times and is going to join us again today. we got lots of great guests in the show today. Later this hour, Pastor Phil Ballmeyer, who you can hear right here on AM 1160. And then for two segments, we're going to have Senior Pastor of Compassion Baptist Church in Chicago, uh, Watson Jones. So certainly excited uh, for all of those guys. Well, Steve, I was reading uh, online a uh, new survey came out. Something You and I are both pastors. I just said you're the pastor of Renewal Church of Chicago. Uh, I'm pastor of a church called Four Corners Community Church. <clears throat> and this article came out. It said this, a study of a thousand U.S. Protestant churchgoers found that 91% said they planned on returning to in-person worship when it's safe to do so. The study from Lifeway Research uh, suggest churchgoers are eager to return to pre-pandemic worship services. Uh, Scott McConnell, uh, executive director of Lifeway, said many of these pastors are wondering if those who haven't returned ever will. Nine in ten churchgoers plan to do so when safe. And so that, the kind of the headline number there, that's really encouraging. What did you think yeah. when you first read that? I mean, you and I are both pastors. We talked right, about it yesterday. Right. Like, are our people coming back? Are they going to yeah. show up again? And so I, I find good uh, uh, kind of I, I get uh, encouraged by this. Same here. I, I think intuitively you you get a sense that people want to come back. Yeah. Uh, you get a sense that people have a, an appreciation for that part of their lives. I agree. Uh, more and more that that they even the introverts are like I miss greeting time. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. I don't know if it's true. When think about, I had a guy in my church who is not an extrovert. He's not this guy, right? Uh, say to me. Uh, I'm going to be like the biggest hugger in the church once we're all yeah, back and yeah. vaccinated and this and that. This, that goes on to say 51% of churchgoers said that they didn't attend any in-person services yet. And 83% said they watched a live stream of a church service instead. But uh, the study also noted only 5% of churchgoers have said that they switched to another church in the same area. Uh, and so I find this all to be encouraging. Now, you know, you're not the only pastor on your staff. You've talked about your friend, I believe, Derek, right? Yes. And uh, probably some other staff and elders. As you guys have wrestled, I, I know this has been the case for every pastor. What have the conversations been like for you guys? Not our people coming back, but here, let me ask you two questions. First, how have you kept uh, like connected to your people through yeah. this? Like, how have you done that? And then I'd love to know, how's the conversation been going about when do we open? How do we actually do this? Yeah, so we kind of like, we're like, let's go grassroots mm -hmm. and we're going to like get on the phone and call people. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and so some of that, you know, we, you know, it's not a, a huge church. And so we're able to break that up uh, among uh, one another and and make phone calls and check in and pray for people and it, it's been really uh, like a cool 
part of ministry that we didn't participate a whole lot in previously. Right. So you get to call people and pray for them, you know, c- catch people in the midst of difficult situations mm. and just they feel grateful that their pastor called and said, let's pray. And so uh, that's been one of the things that we've done. We have like overemphasized small groups. So despite doing stuff online and Zoom calls and stuff like that, we're still pressing the pedal, uh, the gas on that and saying, let's let's keep keep at it, keep getting together, keep connecting with Mm. with one another. And uh, and then just trying to empower small group leaders to stay connected to people throughout the week. Yeah. And so we got some really great small group leaders and um, we try to cast vision for them to do that. And then uh, probably over the course of the past month or so, we've really kind of ramped up the idea of what it will look like to have an in-person worship gathering. And we're planning on Easter Sunday. Awesome. And so, we've yeah, we're excited about it. We've got a lot of uh, details to go as far as uh, technology and safety precautions and all those different things. And so, you know, but the question did arise, do we need to do a live worship gathering now is that a necessary you know thing are people wanting to do that and i think we look at like the article that you referenced and it's like yeah i think people do really do want to do that and with the transience of the of the city of chicago man there's people who are moving here or people who are moving to other places right and they need that touch point they need that in-person connection and uh yeah i just think that we don't know what we've missed in the uh, the actual physical gathering i totally agree with that i think that there came a point through all of this we're all like oh maybe just doing it online is better maybe or not better but it's a it's a sufficient uh replacement but i do think the more and more this is going on i can just sense it not just in myself but in other people going yeah. like let's when when and how do you wrestle with this is the unanswerable question so i'm going to ask you the unanswerable question <laughs> we said you've been vaccinated already yeah uh but kind of the unanswerable question is when do you think things will be back to normal what does that even look like because you even said how do yeah. we reopen now with proper precautions and this and that do you think there's coming a day when there's no more precautions and have you guys even talked about how do we figure out when that day even is. Yeah, I think we're trying to pay attention to medical experts as Mm -hmm. much as possible. So I saw Dr. Fauci on uh, television this morning, and he's saying that with Johnson & Johnson, uh, their vaccine coming out and Merck's going to produce that vaccine, that there's a real possibility of fall this year of Mm -hmm. back to normal. Now, he also said that that back to normal may mean doing all the same things with a mask on. Yep. Um, and so that's, I think that's the next thing is like figuring out when do we stop wearing masks? Yes. Um, or, or is this something that's going to go through 2022? Right. And so I, I'm guessing, you know, if I if this is the unanswerable question and I could give an answer, I think we're going no masks, uh, no precautions, June, summer 2022 completely. Mm, Okay, but we're back to doing normal life fall of 2021. I I can sign on for that. Like get my kids back in school (laughs) like they're in school now. But this and that. 
I, I didn't prep you for this question. This might sound like a really strange question, but we've done art. You're in a multi, you are a, uh, a, an intentionally multi-ethnic church yeah. in the city, which we'll talk about again, I think is fascinating. Um, but I've, we've done articles in this show where uh, different ethnicities, white and black and Asian, are, uh, are being affected by COVID differently and are kind of handling it differently. Yeah. What's that like to lead a multi-ethnic church where maybe even different people are viewing COVID in different ways? Or since you guys are a community, does it feel like you're all kind of at this the same way? It's unique. Yeah. Uh, but th- this is what I know. This is this is <laughs> yes. I, there's like this uh, chameleon that comes with being a pastor of a multi-ethnic church. And I, I guess I've just always felt kind of like a chameleon. Yeah. Um, and and yet, like, there just is the reality of like the Tuskegee experiments. And you, you talk to older African-American people and they're like, I don't trust a vaccine. I don't want to get vaccinated. And then you talk to some other uh you know, millennial Caucasian mm-hmm. people. And it's mm-hmm. just like, yeah, oh, okay, we're going to, we're going to get vaccinated. And, um, and it's sort of across the board. And my thing is I feel confident enough to say that I've talked to enough medical professionals. I've talked to enough African-American medical professionals, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh, to feel like I can say it's important that we get vaccinated. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I'm I'm confident of that. And yeah. so I, I feel like that's the best measure of of leading our people through is saying, hey, I got look, I got my Moderna sticker <laughs> here. <laughs> I've gotten vaccinated. Uh, let's if pastors are still gatekeepers to communities. Right. Uh, let's show show off that that we have been vaccinated. Oh, that's a good word. And I can't wait till I can have the sticker. <laughs> Come <laughs> <So> on. <laughs> just tell me when and where. Right. Yeah. Right yeah. Uh, we're glad that you're with us today. Coming up next, we're going to be joined uh, by the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove and the host of Day by Day, which is heard weekdays here on AM 1160. His name is Phil Ballmeyer. Uh, Phil is going to join us next year on the Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this beautiful afternoon here in the Chicagoland area. And we are thrilled to be joined by the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove and the host of Day by Day, which is heard weekdays at 4.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. here on AM 1160. That is Phil Ballmeyer. Phil, thanks for joining us, man. Brian, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is absolutely our pleasure. We're glad always to bring teammates from the station here uh, onto the show. And uh, your ministry day by day, it's been, as we said, on AM 1160 here for over 17 years, kind of as the outreach mm-hmm. teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel. Uh, just kind of going way back, how did God place it on your heart, even in the beginning, to start a radio ministry? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question, Brian. Actually, we weren't even planning on being on the radio. We were a small church. We're still a relatively small church. And, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, and we just never thought about radio. It was mm-hmm. a great way to go, but we just didn't have the resources we thought. So around uh, 2004, we had a gentleman come into our church that had been uh, staff at a large church in California. Mm-hmm. And they had a radio ministry on Salem out there. He said, he approached me one day and said, look, I think the church would be... Uh, you know, would benefit to go on the radio and get the word out. And I said, uh, okay. Uh, I said, it's kind of expensive, though. And he said, well, <laughs> uh, would you be open to talking to somebody? He called his contact in California, and then they forwarded 
uh, a gentleman out uh, out here, Larry Chapel, who's still uh-huh. uh, resident for the churches and great guy. And so this gentleman said, "Would you would you be open to meeting with this uh, representative from Salem?" I said, "Well, sure, absolutely." So after we met with Larry, uh, we were so excited about the possibility uh, that we went ahead and took a step in faith, Brian. Now in those days, they only had a fifteen minute slot open, mm-hmm. and only then Tuesday through Friday. And uh, we were, you know, we were, you know, a little bit uh, concerned. Uh, Lord, is this of you? If it's of you, we don't worry about it. But are we, are we being presumptuous? You know? Yeah. Well, we felt like the word was in, so we took a step in faith. And Brian, about uh, two weeks later, and we understand that our church never asks people for money. We just have always believed where God guides, He provides. Wow. And so we never ask for money from anyone, and we just pray. And so we were praying about it, of course, and about two weeks later, we got a check in the mail from somebody that used to go to our church several years earlier, had moved to England, didn't know anything about the radio ministry, and they just sent us a check out of the blue that covered the entire first year. Wow. So now it was full steam ahead. We know that God was in it, and so we just went ahead full, full bore, and what happened was eventually... Uh, the Monday slot opened up, so now we were uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, for 15 minutes. It was 7 to 7.15 in those days in the evening, and 4.30 in the morning. And then the ministry that uh, that came on at 7.15 to 7.30, they pulled off, and so that opened up that 15 minutes. So we took another step in faith, mm-hmm. and now we were on at that time from 7 to 7.30. Now, Brian, what happened was, and of course, it's always a walk of faith. You yeah, know, right. what a privilege to be on the radio. We've had a great working relationship with Sam. We couldn't be happier with you guys. Uh, but when when the 08 crash took place, we uh, we were, you know, people, you know, got out of work and and uh, and donations were way down. And, uh, you know, and we, we had a fairly large radio uh, budget that we had to fulfill. And uh, so the, the church uh, resources, our, our savings account began to dwindle as mm-hmm. we paid all the other things. And so we began to really pray. And we kept praying, we kept praying, and, 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 the, and the resources kept dwindling. And again, never asking people for anything, just praying. And uh, so it finally got down to Brian about a week before we were going to have to make a decision. I just brought everything to the Lord once again and said, Lord, if radio was only a season and the season's over, that's fine. It's, it's, it's your church, mm-hmm. your money, whatever you want us to do. And so, uh, but I have to be a good steward, Lord, you know that. And I can't, and so I just, you know, e- either you're in this or you're not. And I'll just, if nothing comes in, then I'll just assume it's time to get off the radio. Yeah. Well, Brian, you know, this is just the absolute truth. Uh, a few days after I prayed that prayer, now we're looking at about three or four days before we got to make a decision to come off or not. Uh, we got a check in the mail that covered half of a year. Wow. And then two weeks after that, we got another. These are from different people that didn't know anything about the radio, never asked them for money. We got another check in the mail that covered the second half of that year. Amazing. So it was God was once again confirming to us, I have opened this door, and, you know, as the book of Revelation says, I have opened the door before you that no man can shut. And yeah. so we just kept going, and we uh, have stayed on now, as you said, 17 years. And uh, we're not a big church, but God has always provided and, uh, you know, even in the COVID lockdowns of last year, when a lot of churches uh, had to come off radio and even close their doors, uh, God kept blessing us, and uh, He kept providing. Salem worked with us for a while, and 
uh, helped us uh, reducing the cost of the radio shows for a little while until the uh, churches could open up. But, you know, Brian, it's been a great uh, experience, and, uh, again, couldn't be happier with the folks at Salem that you guys have been great. Well, Phil, that's that's a really encouraging story of faith there. Uh, just at, over the 17 years, does a story come to mind of something, you know, someone's called you or sent you an email about, like, hey, I was listening in, in to the radio, and, and God did something, uh, reached this person through the radio show. Does, does any uh, story come to mind for you? Oh. Well, there's so many, but it's hard to pinpoint one. Mm-hmm. We've had people call all the time going through personal crises that li- have listened on the radio. Uh, we've had people call that were suicidal, and we've been able to minister to them. Uh, one call, uh, one lady uh, was telling the story, and uh, that uh, she was uh, a flight. She's a flight attendant, and she was on her way to work. Uh, you know, uh, around 4:30. Now, let me just say this to you: when we first signed up to go on the radio. It was really about the 7 o'clock slot at that time in the evening. Right. But uh, Larry Chappell, uh, you know, uh, WRSL threw in 4.30 in the morning to kind of sweeten the deal. And I thought, well, yeah, we'll take it. But I don't even know who's listening at 4.30. <laughs> Where was I wrong? Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes we have more people listening at 4.30 than <laughs> now at 6 o'clock. That's wild. But this lady was a flight attendant going through a very uh, bad time. She didn't have a church, and she just was really at a low place. And so she cried out, Lord, please help me. Please, I need you to lead me to a church that's going to teach me the truth. And the Lord spoke to her heart very softly and said, turn on the radio. At that Mm -hmm. moment, she turned on the radio at YLL, uh, you know, 1160, I should say, and our, our program was on that 4.30 program. And she said God really used it, and she became a faithful listener, and God used it to pull her out of this depression. And the, the teaching of the Word was feeding her spirit. And it just, uh, I just, that was just one of so many stories we could tell about how God has reached out to the radio. And, uh, you know, and years ago we prayed that God would expand our church beyond the walls of our building. Yeah. And not even realizing what God was going to do, but that was something he laid in our heart. And then, Brian, God opened the door for the radio, and today our church has gone way beyond the walls of our little building. And we have a church family that's spread out so far. It's amazing how many people listen, and, and once in a while they'll email or they'll call. Yeah. And just to say thank you, this has been just a, a, such a, a benefit and, and such a, a feeding of my spirit, uh, you know, during some very difficult times in my life. So, you know, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing what God will do if we're just available and, and take a step in faith. Oh, Phil, that's, that's a great message right there. Here, There's also something I want to share with our listeners, something exciting. Uh, you can get a free download of uh, Pastor Phil Ballmeyer's series called What's Next for America. Here's how you do it. Visit 1160hope.com and search for the keyword day, D-A-Y, day. That's 1160hope.com, keyword day. And when you register for your free download, you're going to automatically be entered for a chance to win a grand prize, which is an LG TV, a a beautiful television. All of the details are at 1160hope.com, keyword day. Phil, that's such a great thing right there. I know we got to close up here in a second. I was disappointed I can't win, but, you know, there's people out there who get that opportunity. So, again, go to 1160hope.com, keyword day. You can also learn more about Calvary Chapel Elk Grove at CCL. 
elkgrove.org. That's ccelkgrove.org. And learn more about Day by Day Radio at daybydayradio.org. And as always, you can listen to Phil uh, as the host of Day by Day, heard weekdays, 4.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. right here on AM 1160. Phil, it's great to meet you. Thanks for all that you do. And we look forward to somebody winning this beautiful television. Amen, Brian. Thank you so much. God bless you. Yeah, you as well. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on a beautiful uh, Chicago day. And, Steve, one of the beauties of having uh, uh, you in as a co-host or other guest co-hosts is we get to bring their friends in yeah, with man. them. And so with that in mind, we're thrilled to be joined for the next two segments uh, by Watson Jones III. Watson is the senior pastor of Compassion Baptist Church right here in Chicago. Watson, how are you? Thank you for joining us. I am doing really well. Thank you guys so much for having me here. It is a joy, joy, joy to be here. And it's getting warmer outside. Isn't it glorious? Isn't it wonderful? Praise the Lord. uh, Before we jump in here and and talk to you about a bunch of different things, I would love for you just to introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit. Yeah, so I'm uh, uh, Watson Jones. I pastor uh, Compassion Baptist Church on the southeast side of Chicago in the neighborhood uh, that I grew up in. Mm. Uh, And I grew up at Salem Baptist Church on the south side of Chicago. Uh, went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield. Currently pursued a Ph.D. in African-American preaching and sacred rhetoric in Indianapolis, a Christian theological. And uh, married to my wife and three—well, married to my wife. We have three kids uh, <laughs> here uh, on the south side, and we'd be celebrating 15 years this year. So it is— it's certainly a privilege to be here. Oh, congratulations. And uh, that's fascinating that you're pastoring in the neighborhood that you grew up in. Uh, what are the joys of doing that? And what are the struggles of pastoring in the neighborhood that you grew up in? The joys, well, one, it, 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 I've come back into my community having never looked at it through an eyes of a missionary before. Hmm. And so now I'm looking at it through a different lens, trying to figure out how to engage it, how to reach it, what are the needs. I'm learning different people groups in my community that didn't know were there, or I knew were there but didn't know, like, where. Mm-hmm. Um, and learning about the different boundaries that I would have never thought about as a, as a child or as a young teenager. Um, so, so, and then also I think because it is my community, my mother still lives there. Mm -hmm. And so there is a deeper, and I know a lot of people there. So there is a deeper, uh, passion, uh, for that community, um, that doesn't have to be birthed or nurtured. It's one that's there because I grew up there. So, Mm -hmm. uh, that's interesting. I would say the difficult parts. You know, the good part is not many people that knew me as a boy are still there. Some are. Mm. So I don't necessarily have to deal with the, we knew you as a boy. (laughs) (laughs) So, but, um, but I think, I think, you know, ministry presents its own challenges, you know, sociological challenges, economic challenges Mm -hmm. as it relates to just what the community deals with. I think COVID has been an interesting struggle uh, with us, and um, you know, but but it's 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 really good. I, I do I do enjoy pastoring, and one of my deacons is was my teacher in high school. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of funny. That's awesome. He was my driving instructor. So, oh, how yeah. funny. 
That's awesome, man. I, I know Watson, that, and this is something Brian uh, Watson won't tell you, but he also planted a church in Philadelphia a few years ago. Okay. So uh, Watson oh, I is... I forgot to say that is beyond me. <laughs> <laughs> Watson is a jack of all trades. Yeah, He's good yeah. at a little bit of everything. And so, um, man, uh, Pastor Watson Jones, man, I am curious because I know that both of us have studied some American Christian history, uh, and yeah. you participated a little bit in tweeting with the Ann campaign uh, while the PBS documentary The Black Church was going on. I'm curious, what were you tweeting and what prompted those tweets? So I sent a few. You know, it, it was mostly just thinking about some of the prophetic and the biblical traditions of the Black Church. And I think one of the things that I wanted to do, I mean, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, first of all, did a fabulous job. Uh, with the documentary, just, you know, the brilliance he brings. But he approaches the study of the black church from a different lens. You know, he's looking at it, whereas I would look at it from a theological lens as a pastor. He's not a pastor. He would look at it from a historical and maybe even a sociological lens. So Mm. as a pastor, my hope was to, in tweets and, 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 and even in conversations around it, was to present sort of a, or to to talk a little bit theologically about uh, what the black church has been and uh, and how it has functioned and how that theology has really impacted how the black church functions in our world uh, to the present. And so that was the heart behind at least the end campaigns when we were planning to, well, when we did our live tweeting. Oh, that's just, that's great. I, kind of shooting all fields here, Watson. I'm just curious, uh, what's the COVID nineteen pandemic? We now we're now in this a year today, I believe, is like the anniversary. What's it been like for yourself, for your church? How have you encouraged and pastored your church over the course of the last year through a pandemic? Oh man, where do I start? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is a year into this pandemic, and so that means this upcoming Sunday would have been our last Sunday in person. Mm-hmm. And um, and I remember telling my church uh, before, you know, hey, guys, we're not going to shake hands and all of that because there's the coronavirus. I had just gotten back from India and, um, and, and Nepal maybe less than a month ago, less than a month prior to that. And so wow. I knew it was a thing over there. I just didn't know it would come here in the way that it did. And uh, and the gentleman sat down next to me after I had made the announcement that we ain't going to shake hands no more. And said, Pastor, I work for some people in the hospital who deal with infectious diseases, and this is going to get worse than you can ever imagine. Mm -hmm. And I got up within seconds to get up and preach. The following week, we called the service and and made the decision not to meet. A lot of that was because my congregation has, you know, it's, it's multi-generational. Yeah. So I have younger adults, but I also have seasoned saints and many whom would be in that category of, um, you know, that, that were high, high morbidities or comorbidities or, um, that would just pass that 65 threshold. And so for me, it was not something to make light of. And so we made the decision to close the church mm-hmm. because no one in my congregation was around in 1918 to experience <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, yeah. I felt that uh, they were all just as shocked as I was. And so we took the time for a while, spent every day doing devotionals to kind of deal with hmm. people's fear, to yeah. deal with people's hope, fear of hope, uh, lack of hope, to, to help people trust God in this season. But it was also a time for us to lean into being the light. Cause I believe the scriptures tell us in Matthew 
that we're the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and we let our light so shine so people see our good works. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that we do good works to highlight the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of the kingdom. And so we leaned into that. So we were trying hard to get people that are not vaccinated tested. We fed uh, nurses in our in the hospital around the corner from my church. We fed people who needed food in partnership with Trinity Hospital. We uh, did several testings. We um, eventually passed out lots of food later on in the fall. Yeah. We did a Christmas giveaway, um, Christmas outreach with the partnership of Chicago uh, Delivers or the Chicago Partnership. Mm-hmm. And so we really tried our hardest to not be people who ran. I mean, when you saw the first century church run in light of persecution, they scattered, but that scattering, they took ministry with them. And so we tried our hardest to lean into that. uh, And God has really, really shown grace to us to do it. Yeah, it's been just an unbelievable year. So I'd love to hear from pastors what it's been like. That other voice here uh, is Watson Jones III, Senior Pastor of Compassion Baptist Church right here in Chicago. He's got a website you can go to, cbchicago.org. That's cbchicago.org. I want to ask you, as you looked at that PBS documentary, and as I was watching it, there were certain parts of me that were excited just because I've studied American Christian history you know, yeah. we both know Doug Sweeney, who's the the yeah. he, formerly the the uh, Jonathan Edwards Scholar at Trinity Evangelical Trinity School. He used to tell yeah. me all the time, "There's so much missing, at least in the writing of the Black Church." That there's part of me that got really excited to hear about Henry McNeil Turner, or to to know that other people mm-hmm. were hearing about the missionary Henry McNeil Turner, who planted so many churches in the Mid South, and then also yep. in South Africa and across Africa, and to yep. hear Gardner C. Taylor's voice in the background of some moments, yep. and to see C. L. Franklin yep. uh, be talked about, mm-hmm. and to kind of come come back with this big picture of like, man, the Black Church was the foremost organization mm-hmm. that helped the black community uh, be what it is today. Mm. And uh, I left with that, and I know there were some things that were missing historically, or at least from our perspective theologically. Uh, What were some things that you didn't like about the documentary? Mm. Yeah, so I think the things that stood to me, you know, was, was the you know, I always look about Black History Month, for example, which is oftentimes talked about from a sociological perspective. Uh, and, and it's like it's a sociological phenomenon, this great thing happened, and that's it. And we sometimes can downplay the theological things that fed the civil rights movement or even the abolitionist movement. I think the part that I think was missing in, in the documentary was helping people to see um, how first black Christians, the highest theme black Christians held to the scriptures, mm. um, the deep belief in Christ Jesus as the scripture presents him in fullness, which means the insistence upon what his death meant for us on the cross, but also what his life means for us, meant for us and what the kingdom meant in terms of how we live in the world. Um, and so, you know, when I think of the black church, um, and I'm not the first to say this, but I think I, I jotted this note, even as something else I wrote a few days ago, that when I think of the black church, it has always sort of ran the spectrum of priestly and prophetic, where it has always focused on 
getting right and maintaining right relationship with God, but has always dealt with the prophetic of critiquing evils in society and, and naming how God is active in pushing against those evils. And one person I think that comes to mind is a um, gentleman who helped uh, Richard Allen start the AME Church, um, Absalom Jones. He preached a sermon in 1805 called the Thanksgiving Sermon, and in that sermon, he acknowledges God for ending the slave trade. Now, slavery was still happening in America, but ending the slave trade where it was outlawed in by the United States Congress, right? Mm. And he honors God. He says, God has done this. America prior to this had known no time where slaves were not brought over from 1619 to that moment. Mm. He says, God has done this. And God will, because we see it in the scriptures, God will end slavery. We know he will. But what he told his listening audience was this, as a result of the faithfulness of God, teach your children to love Jesus Christ and to walk with him and to live right. Mm. That, to me, paints a picture of the black church that while we sometimes dichotomize theology and say left, right, I almost would say to the black church has kind of always been centrist theologically, where it is held to a very high view of Scripture, very high understanding of Christ Jesus, uh, and and then also those things giving us impetus to have social action uh, that feeds into movements that we saw um, take place over the last 200 years or so, well, maybe more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Watson, I wonder what you think about, uh, you know, people have always said through the years, uh, you know, if you want to see the the greatest uh, racial division, go, you know, 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning, go to a church or uh, what does the, what's the church's opportunity right now? Black church, white church, multi-ethnic. What is what is the opportunity and what do you think unity looks like going forward? Kind of paint a picture for what unity in the church could even look like between races, between uh, backgrounds. What, what can it even look like, do you think? That's a good question. So it, it has, it's going to have a lot to do with justice. And mm-hmm. let me back in and say it this way. When we look at reconciliation, right, and even from a biblical perspective, reconciliation by definition is the creation of peace by the removal of hostility, meaning the hostility having to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons why we look at Tom Skinner's movement and others who led to the racial reconciliation movement that we understood in the church in the 70s, 80s, and 90s one of the reasons why it seems at this point it is halted um, is because there is still this sense where the church doesn't want to deal with its actual sin, mm. of its historical sin. I mean, it, it, it looks at racism and thinks of it in individual terms, in terms of like, you know, I like this person or don't like this person. And that is a part of racism, don't get me wrong. But it doesn't, in unison, address the effects of racism. And and it seems in every generation, every iteration of the church, there's always sort of a, a theological dance or a way around dealing with those issues. Today, it's the question of critical race theory, which I'm not a critical race theorist, but it's the discussion about that, or being called Marxist, or in the 60s, being called communist. Um, it has to address not the elephant in the room, but the cause of that division. Hmm. And, and which is deeper than person to person, it's system, it's laws, it's policies, it's, it's all of these things. It's the way media portrays, it's the way things are written, songs are gone out. It's, it's, it's in the policies, it's in the pol- political rhetoric, it's in a lot of things. It's almost as if, 
if you say to someone, like, I want to take the butter out of a cake or the egg out of a cake after it's baked, you can't do it because the egg is so baked into the cake. Mm. It's almost like that with racism. Racism is deeply baked into our country. Now, I do believe it can be dealt with. It can be made right. But it's deeply baked into our country, especially into our American church. And the way that it's going to have to be dealt with is in an acknowledgement of the gospel unity that we do have in Christ Jesus, so theological unity, an acknowledgement of that, but then also a saying, how do we work to make things right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some examples I've seen that in is, is the Ferguson brothers example in, uh, here in Chicago. Um, one thing that they said in their little bitty corner, well, their corner is a pretty big corner, but their little <laughs> yeah. bitty corner, they said, they were like, you know, we're going to take money from our bank, our, our bank account from our church. That's right. And we're going to invest it into a black bank mm-hmm. and we're going to encourage our members to do the same. Now that's not changing a slew of laws, but what it is doing is dealing with financial inequities that persist even in Chicago to this day, where it's difficult for African Americans to get business loans or even to this day to get mortgages, um, which then blocks people out of the acquisition or the acquiring of wealth. So it's going to take a theological recognition, but then letting that theology say we are brothers and sisters in Christ who are marching forward to really address these issues. Yeah, if you want to see what Watson's actually talking about, we actually had Dave Ferguson on to talk about that about a month ago. They're called the Justice Deposits, uh, a new program yeah. out of Community Christian Church that is just fascinating. That's kind of what Watson was talking about. Watson, we feel like we could talk to you forever, but before we let you go, uh, where can people find you, whether it be social media, it be website, wherever else, where can people find you? Yes, yeah, so you can reach me on Instagram at WatsonJones3. Uh, same handle for Twitter, Facebook, it's Watson Jones III. If you're interested in look, looking at any of our church stuff, you can go to YouTube, Compassion Baptist Church Chicago, and the same for Facebook, Compassion Baptist Church. And uh, we'd love to connect with you. I'd love to connect with you uh, any way I can or any way we can. Great. God bless you. You too. Thanks so much for joining us. That's Watson Jones III. He's the senior pastor of Compassion Baptist Church here in Chicago. Watson, thanks so much. This was a, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for being with us, man. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you're you for li- having me. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss Tim Keller's Atlantic article about facing death. And then we're joined for two segments by the president and CEO of Open Doors USA, Dr. David Curry. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us. So I sent this article your way. I actually, one of the shows last week that I did by myself or earlier this week, I read a lot of uh, this Tim Keller article at The Atlantic called Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. Uh, Let me give you a little bit of background on it. Tim Keller is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Uh, Tim Keller is just widely respected, right? Uh, Widely respected. I joked how I once went to a church planting conference and they referred to him as Yoda. Like he is like (laughs) just a wealth of just, and he is, uh, he retired as the, you know, day-to-day pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, but he's still preaching. He's still teaching. He's still writing a ton. That guy's written more books than I've read in my lifetime. Uh, (laughs) 
And, but within the last year, uh, he was diagnosed with a pretty aggressive form of pancreatic cancer. And he talks in this article about how he had just finished writing a book called On Death. Yeah. And and with this article, and I think one thing that's really fascinating about this article is that it's not written for Christianity today. It's not written. It's written for the Atlantic. Right. And Tim Keller, and I'll read some of it later, but I would just love your, your feel just having read it because he, he kind of really kind of lays bare his own soul and, and of his wife as well as to like here's what it's been like to actually face my mortality not just write about it uh, and thankfully he's doing well at the moment but he talks about how he has a form of cancer that is likely to get him at some point like it's, yeah. it's likely to get him and so he really is very personal in this and talks about as someone who's pastored and counseled many people leading up to their deaths how it's really changed things for him now that he's the one facing death. And so, like I said, I'll read some of it later, but but I'm just wondering, I, I sent you this article saying, hey, give this a read. Wonder wonder what you thought about it. It was kind of breathtaking yeah. in, a, in a lot of ways. Um, like you, I have uh, drunk deeply <laughs> of the well of Tim Keller. I read his, I was on vacation last week and read his, book on prayer for the second time mm-hmm. um and so i'm almost like man what it you know it's kind of like if there's a topic that i want to know something about i want to hear what tim keller has to say about it 100 percent. and I, I you know i know that he had just published this book on death i read a grief observed by c.s lewis mm-hmm. uh probably a couple of months before his book came out and i was thinking about it it was interesting and and they talked about um in this particular article of being sideswiped by grief mm-hmm. and i i couldn't help but resonate with that you know you know that my mom passed away last right. year and that's right uh, just what that experience is like in feeling sideswiped by by grief in that way. And yet he, he comes around to talk about this future reality of taking hold of the of like what this actually means to have uh, be united to Jesus and experience mm-hmm. bodily resurrection in the future and how those things are just theories that we talk about and we come alongside people. But then when you actually have to face death um, yourself, it's 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 a reality. And I, and I think that. You know, what he's talking to and who he's speaking to in this article is the whole culture and society of of uh, of Western of the Western world is sort of avoiding death or mm-hmm. the conversation of death or the thought of of death and dying. And yet, bam, it's a reality. I remember walking in the room and my mom's gone mm. and just being like, you know, so shocked that it can't be it can't be real. Yeah. And then to think about like. That that's that experience is coming for us one day. Yes. You know what I mean? That that experience of going to be uh, in hospice care or that experience of going to uh, know that, man, this diagnosis is probably not going to be the end or it's probably going to be the end in terms of life on this earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it was it was breathtaking. Yeah. It made me think about. You know, in, in thinking about my mom and thinking about uh, Tim Keller, is thinking, you know, he starts talking about how you look at the flowers different mm-hmm. and how you experience a sunset differently and even how you experience sex within your marital relationship. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it just puts so many different things into perspective. And I just, you know, kind of 
hit you with the fire hydrant there, but those were just things. I don't know what to do with it all it's yet. It's a really good, uh, it's 100% how I feel. Often when I read Keller, he does feel sometimes like a modern day C.S. Lewis. Like you read yeah. him and you're like, that was so good. I have to read it again. Let me read how he ends it. I'm, we're going to put this article back up on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram page at Common Good Talk because it's so long and so good. If we tried to do this justice, it would be like an hour's worth mm-hmm. of our show here instead of a segment. But I do want to read just how he ends. He says, Uh, His wife's name is Kathy, who he's going to reference here. He said, to our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we're able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with the demands impossible for it to fulfill. We have found that the simplest things from the sun on the water, the flowers in the vase to our own embraces, sex and conversation bring more joy than ever. This has taken us by surprise. This change was not an overnight revolution. As God's reality dawns more on my heart, slowly and painfully and through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It is only as I've become, for the lack of a better term, more heavenly minded that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift it is. is. He says, I can say without any sentimentality that I've never been happier in my life and I've never had more days filled with comfort. But it's equally true that I've never had so many days of grief. And let me skip to the end. He says, yes, but I've come to be grateful for those side swipes because they remind me to reorient myself to the convictions of my head and the processes of my heart. When I take time to remember how to deal with my fears and savor my joys, the consolations are stronger and sweeter than ever. I, I, I guess I want to give you the last word on this idea that he says this this paradox. I think most people are sitting there going, "Wait, you're dying." Yeah, possibly, right? Like he he's he's, he's fighting it. Yeah, uh, but that he said, "I've uh, people understand I've had more days of grief than ever before." But he says with all sincerity, I've never been happier in my life and had more days filled of comfort. What do you do with that paradox? Because most people probably listening or in the pews when we say it are going, that sounds really good, Pastor. Yeah. But that's not true. Uh, But this is someone in the midst of it going, I've never been happier in my life. What do you do with that? You know, the thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, thinking about what the scripture says of Jesus, that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief Mm. and how you know, in Romans chapter eight, it talks about how we've become these adopted children uh, if we suffer for his sake. Mm-hmm. And there's just something about suffering that reminds you of certain truths or, where it illuminates them in such a way that they become tangible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would never say, yeah, bring it on. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I would ne- that would ne- I would not be the person to say, sign me up. Um, and yet the reality is there are certain things about life that you can't learn uh, without suffering. And you and I think that you also learn to savor the good things about life yeah. uh, when you go through some stuff. Mm-hmm. That's a really good word, man. This article, the reason we've done it twice is it is so phenomenal. Uh, Tim Keller here at The Atlantic. Again, it's up at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Well, uh, speaking of suffering, we're going to have the president and CEO of Open Doors USA. His name is David Curry, talking to us about the suffering, the persecuted church around the world. Dr. David Curry from Open Doors USA is going to join us for the next two segments here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined by my guest co-host, Steve Koble. Glad that you are with us 
uh, on a beautiful day here in Chicago. And we are thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by the CEO of Open Doors USA. That is Dr. David Curry. Dr. Curry, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, the pleasure is all ours. Before we get going and talking about Open Doors USA, why don't you, just so our people can get to know you a little bit, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Well, Open Doors is one of those uh, well-kept secrets in the body of Christ. Uh, we, we've been in ministry for almost 70 years. Wow. Some wow. people uh, who have a good memory will remember the book God's Smuggler. It told the story of a man named Brother Andrew, who mm. during the times of the Soviet Union smuggled Bibles, first in his little VW bug, and then through ever-growing sophistication and, and, and various means, smuggled millions of Bibles into the former Soviet Union. Well, that was the birth of Open Doors. So if people want to know, what is Open Doors about? Well, we still do the same kinds of things. Wow. We support persecuted believers in areas where it's illegal to be a Christian or where Christians are facing opposition, discrimination, and even in some uh, cases, uh, sadly, they're they're under physical attack or even death. So that's what wow. we do. We, we try to assist persecuted Christians, draw attention to it, be their voice in, in the news or in advocating for them so that people don't forget what's happening. And hopefully um, it's a motivation and, and a, a spark to the Western church to wake up and see what's happening and stand with their brothers and sisters. Oh, that's great. Well, Dr. Curry, uh, speaking of the persecuted church, uh, I think a lot of people here in America and in the West would be surprised, uh, you know, quite frankly, that there even is a persecuted church, when in reality there's an enormous persecuted church yeah. around the world. Uh, what do you say to people who are unfamiliar, maybe here in America, with the fact that there even is a persecuted church? Can you kind of paint a picture, a global picture for us? You bet. And and I understand we're, we can be so uh, myopically focused on what's happening right between us. We all have our own challenges that we sometimes don't kind of do the math when we look around the world. But l- let me give people some some numbers, but then give some context to those numbers. There's over 300 million Christians right now, 300 million who are suffering high or extreme levels of persecution. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, there's 100 million Christians just in China alone. That's more people than are members of the Communist Party in China. That's how big Mm -hmm. the church in China has become. Yet they're facing incredible surveillance, pressure, persecution within that country. So just in one country alone, you have 100 million Christians who are being monitored, tracked. They have a social score where they're being counted as a bad citizen because they go to church, because they they want their kids to go to Bible study. So it's a big issue. Then when you start talking about the Middle East and the context there where you have extremists who attack Christians, who will kill Christians, uh, you can begin to get uh, an idea of the levels of persecution and the kinds of persecution that happen. It's different in every context. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the government. Sometimes it's extremists. But it's very real, and it's well beyond any sort of inconvenience or sort of a sense of uncomfortable uh, observation or, or um, judgment that we might get here in the West for being a Christian. Dr. Curry, I'm, I'm curious with all of the coronavirus globally happening, where, where have you been traveling to to check on these churches? Well, one of the things that makes Open Doors unique is that we're present in all of these places. So mm-hmm. when when uh because our belief is it needs to be people to people there are other great ministries that sort of airdrop things into 
into these countries. But when you look at the places where we work, and we have a watch list of the top 50 countries and beyond where it's most intense, mm-hmm. we have teams in those places. So when borders are shut down, it's not as critical uh, to us because we're already in these yeah. places. Yeah, although it does mean some logistic problems. But one of the things that has jumped up in the midst of of this uh, pandemic is how some governments and extremist groups are using the COVID crisis to as a filter by which to persecute Christians. For example, mm. in India, we have several groups, 115,000 families that we identified who are Christian families who were withheld food, food aid, and medical aid because they were Christians. We've identified this. We've called it to the attention of the Indian government. We stepped in and provided food to these groups. But that's the kind of thing that happened in COVID that we did not anticipate. Mm. It's also happened in Nigeria and other places as well where extremists would rob or attack uh, uh, the hospitals in Christian villages in the north of Nigeria to make sure that they didn't have any food and, and this sort of thing. And they have a theology, extremist theology to be sure, as to why that's justified. Mm. But uh, that's, that's been happening. Yeah. And Dr. Curry, uh, as the president and CEO of Open Doors, and so you're just immersed and you're traveling probably pre-COVID a lot more, but you travel to these places. But also this is just on your mind. I'm, I'm curious as to how it stretched your own faith and how you have grown, what it's done in your life by being so immersed and thinking about and helping the persecuted church around the world. Well, I'll tell you something. It, it's 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 bracing every day because we're hearing stories of people being hurt, attacked, uh, uh, p- punished, discriminated against because they're Christians. But it's also very encouraging. Part of why I want believers in the West, in the United States, to find out what's going on is because the persecuted church, those people who are at, at great cost serving Jesus, there's a lot we can learn from them. And they're a joyful group. There's power there. If you ever wondered if the name of Jesus, if your personal faith it would have any value in a totalitarian regime, you got to hear some of the stories and things mm-hmm. that are happening. I went and visited a group uh, in in uh, along the Somalia border. They had, had a, an attack on some churches. Twelve faithful little churches that operate in this in this area, all surrounded by extremists. In the midst of the drama of it all, in the midst of the danger, it was dangerous for me. I was only there for four days, but these people live there. Mm, right. And in the midst of that, they're singing, they're joyful, they're experiencing a, a, a peace in right. Jesus that goes beyond their circumstance. That's the kind of thing I wish people knew that Jesus does well everywhere His name is lifted up. Mm. Dr. Curry, what areas maybe are are nations where people are being persecuted that people in America might not know about or what uh, where is the significant thrust of persecution happening in the world right now? Well, let me give you a couple that are that, that are in the various that, that vary a little bit. First of all, the most violent place north is in the northern parts of Nigeria. There's mm-hmm. there's twelve Sharia law states there, where they have the most extreme. Uh, medieval interpretation of Islam. That's an area to watch because that's an area that mimics, in my mind, I see the patterns, much of what happened before ISIS grabbed a giant territory. Mm. They're peeling off. They're doing attacks. The government is weak. It's not responding. And you could see uh, Niger, uh, parts of Chad, uh, Burkina Faso, the sort of northeast, west, in every area 
where these extremists are attacking, the governments aren't responding well, and they could have a caliphate in the north of hmm. Nigeria. We've drawn this to the attention of the Biden administration and in the previous administrations as well. So that's one to watch. The other one I think that's interesting because of what it portends for the future is China because they're laying out what I think is a roadmap. They've got this technology where they're monitoring in a very minute way every movement, every uh, every system tied together, your behavior. They're taking facial recognition in churches, and then they're saying, Steve, Brian, you've gone to church four times this month. You're not a good citizen. Mm-hmm. That means you travel. That means you may lose your job. That means your kids can't go to the university of wow. their choice if at all. So that is being sold, that technology is being sold to Iran. It's being sold elsewhere. So I think that's wow. a question mark for us. It's like, hey, are we safe having church on Zoom? Yeah. In China, they're not. Elsewhere, they're not. So, I mean, it, it, there there are questions here that I can't answer, but, wow. I, uh, but I raise them as to what is the future going to be like as regards to surveillance and all that sort of thing. Man, that is really fascinating. That other voice you hear is Dr. David Curry. He's the president and CEO of Open Doors USA. Uh, Dr. Curry, uh, recently, you know, a lot of us were watching the news and a lot was made about the Pope visiting Iraq and how big of a deal that was. I wonder, uh, somebody in your position, uh, talk to us a little bit about the significance of the Pope going to Iraq. Well, it is a big deal, and I'll tell you why. And I, I talk to, to leaders and pastors and priests in Iraq on a regular basis. Uh, they're, they're, they're often for, feel forgotten. Mm. They're, they're still quite isolated. The, the, the geography of that country, the Christians are largely populated in, in the Nineveh Plain. So to the east... They have Shia Muslims from Iran and and their military militia groups that are trying to take their territory. On the north, they have Kurdish troops that that are fighting for some of their territory. In some cases, some of these are poisoning their water sources. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And then to the sort of to the south and to the southwest, you have these the centralized. Um, Sunni uh, government of Baghdad, so they don't have a ton of support. They, there's there's only a, a couple hundred thousand Christians left in Iraq, down uh, from a couple of million over the last decade, all because of attacks and civil wars and 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 murders from ISIS and elsewhere. So you've got a very forgotten, discouraged group that just wants to be salt and light in that area. So mm-hmm. when the Pope comes in. Regardless of what their of their particular denomination, it shows people haven't forgotten, and that's one of the things I think we we don't realize the the secondary or third level effects of the social media of the constant drone of bad news that we get drawn in on yeah. on on the news cycle is we forget what happened two years ago, three years ago, yeah. four years ago, and those people are still hurting. Mm. So I think that was important. Here's the other thing that is it's a bigger concept, but I think it's important and you see it in other persecuted communities. Here in the West, we're all divided up. It's like, are you Baptist? Are you Methodist? Are you Pentecostal? Are you Catholic? And we're just like warring, you know, maybe a, a peaceful war, but we sort of don't know if we exactly trust each other. In per, in persecuted co- uh, uh, co- uh, areas, contested areas where people are facing discrimination or persecution for their faith. They have seen a Catholic hung or beheaded right next to a Pentecostal, right mm-hmm. next to a Baptist, and they get this in their soul. 
that the one organizing idea is if you believe in Jesus, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, you are my brother, you are my sister, we have to be together. And I love that the, the, the Pope came in there, he made a statement to all of the Christian community there. I think that's valuable. We could learn something from that, even if we don't agree with some of their theology or how they do, do their worship. These people are dying for Jesus, and they may not be in your denomination, and we kind of got to get our head around that idea and struggle with it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Dr. Curry, do you think the, the Pope has got any plans to do more than just the visit? I think you know. I, I, they, I've heard. Uh, you know, we we are both critical of some of the Vatican strategies and agreements mm-hmm. they've had with China, which I don't think have been helpful to persecuted believers. I think there's some hope and news that maybe they would sign some kinds of agreements with some of these uh, Shia Muslim uh, clerics in the area, just to kind of a, a peaceful joint resolution. I don't know that that really matters. I think. Uh, I don't think they're often worth the paper they're written on Mm -hmm. in in reality, but but I think the statement of going there and letting people know he hasn't forgotten that there's a Christian community there, that's the birthplace of Abraham. Uh, There's been Christians in this uh, this location for ages and ages, and uh, we don't want that group to be forgotten. Yeah. Uh, And Dr. Curry, you mentioned earlier uh, that you've talked to the Biden administration, the past administrations. How much of your work is lobbying our government uh, or trying to work with our government to help the persecuted church? What, what helped us understand that connection for you guys? Well, our goal is to support persecuted the persecuted church. Right. Where we have we have just the one agenda, but the reality is. If you're a believer in North Korea, nobody's talking. Uh, nobody's talking to you. Nobody's your voice. Uh, same with some of these other communities. So we we want to make sure that we're giving facts. That's why our data, the World Watch List, is the most trusted grassroots data because we want to show this isn't anecdote. This isn't whining. This isn't us saying, "Oh, poor us." This is like, "Hey, this is really happening." There were 4,700 Christians that we can prove were killed, executed for their faith. Wow. Now, if that you think of any other sort of minority group, and Christians are the largest religious minority around the world, meaning there's 100 million of them in China, but they're still outnumbered by, by the government and, and elsewhere. So uh, if that was any other minority group that had almost 5,000 people executed, and by the way, there's more than that, that's mm-hmm. just what we can mm-hmm. document, uh, that's all people would be talking about. Yeah. But because it's Christians, people just sort of pass over it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's important that we advocate for them to the degree that we can get them some wiggle room. Let me give you one example. There's 65 million Christians, maybe more than that, but we say 65. That's what we can document. In India, it's a large, the world's largest democracy. We do billions, if not more, uh, of business with India. Mm-hmm. And yet we... Our government hasn't said a whole lot about this this minority of Christians that are greatly persecuted in that country under this administration of, of Prime Minister Modi. By talking with the administration, I, I'm hoping we can get uh, some wiggle room for these, uh, you know, 65 million Christians who just want to practice their faith. They want to go to church in peace mm. without having the government harass them, without having mobs attack them with impunity. So that's one example of how we can make, perhaps help. Dr. Curry, you talked about Islamic extremism in northern Nigeria, and you talked about technology in China. What other things and areas should we be mindful of and praying for? 
Well, I, I, I worry a lot about totalitarianism, and totalitarianism, as I describe it, is where there's these environments by which nothing exists that is not connected to the state. It's all it's all it all ties in together. And I, I'm thinking that one of the things we're going to have to come to grips with is is the rise of what I call cultural totalitarianism, where there, there's such a tide of pressure and intolerance towards any expression of faith in the West and elsewhere that it becomes it becomes another massive driver of persecution or 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 discrimination. So that's something on it's what I call a shadow right now, but I think it's it's something we have to watch, but certainly these govern there are governments, there are there are um, rogue actors uh, out there that I think are attacking churches and that that has not changed. And so we're going to continue to see more persecution in that way. Mm. Another way to say it is ISIS may have lost its capital in its territory, but the ideas still exist and the money still exists. So that's why you see this metastasizing of the cancer of extremism. Mm. Dr. Curry, we're so thrilled for the amount of time you've given us. This has been so good. Uh, Let me ask you, as we close up here, in, in addition to praying, how can people out there, how can believers support persecuted Christians around the world? Maybe point us in one or two directions or things we can be doing? Well, we have an app. It's called Pray for the Persecuted that is just prayer, urgent prayer requests, and we don't Mm -hmm. ask for money. We don't ask for anything. Everybody should download that. It's on Google and Apple. But there are then projects, if God stirs your heart, in these areas around the world, whether it be Somalia or North Korea or India, there are ways that you can support practically um, what's happening to your brothers and sisters, your family, Mm -hmm. uh, for their faith. Yep. Again, you go to opendoorsusa.org. That's opendoorsusa.org. Dr. David Curry, the president and CEO of Open Doors USA, has been kind enough to join us for two segments here. Dr. Curry, thanks so much. This was a great pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on just a beautiful Thursday afternoon. Steve, man, I'm so appreciative. It's been really fun. We've been in studio for the last two I know, days. Man. so. It's a good time. It's a good time. I'm learning about the Giants. <laughs> well, let me ask you the question that I know you've been wanting. Like We were talking about all this God stuff and spiritual stuff, but we were just talking off air. Uh, quarterback of the Bears. Come on, let's turn this into yeah, a sports radio I, show I mean, right here. You're a Colts I've been, fan. I'm a Colts fan. I've been out of the loop for a little bit because I was out of town. And I think it would be pretty incredible if the Bears got Russell Wilson. Yeah. How much would you trade for him? I was just telling you, I read a report today about the Bears possibly saying they'll give up as many draft picks as needed to get, because it's, yeah. like it's not like the Bears could trade this other young quarterback. You know, the Jets right. could trade Sam Darnold or something like that. Right. Uh, but would you feel good about just going, take as many picks as you want, take whatever you need, just get us Russell Wilson? I think I would trade everything but Khalil Mack and maybe whoever's the best offensive lineman. <laughs> like, literally <Yes>. everything. <laughs> Just take it all. Yeah. <laughs> I would be. Uh, we'll figure it out. Again, I'm not a Bears fan. I'm a Giants fan. But it would be fun living here to see them oh, actually man. have a quarterback. Could you imagine how famous Russell Wilson would be around the country if he came to Chicago? Uh, I think that's why they're on his list. <laughs> yeah. He gave that list. I mean, 
it would be great to get Russell Wilson. Could you imagine getting Deshaun Watson right now? I mean, that guy. And not only is he so good, he's like 25, I know, 26 I know. years old. I know. Personally, I think Deshaun, I think Russell Wilson is, is a bit more sturdy. I do agree. I think he's sturdy. I think he can take more. Mm-hmm. But Hey, but you got Carson Wentz, so. We're happy about that. Do you feel that. good about that? We feel really good about that. All right. If uh, if Andrew Luck called today and was like, hey, uh, Colts, I want to come out of retirement. Because he retired at a young age here, which was a weird I, injury problems and whatever. Uh, as a Colts fan, would you be like, Carson, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, let's take Luck back. Or are you like, nope, I'm riding the Carson Wentz train here. I, just because I don't think that it's even remotely a it's possibility, <laughs> right? I would say like, yeah, we need Andrew Luck yeah. immediately, right? He was good, man. He was so good. He was, and you know, to come off of Peyton Manning to Andrew Luck, it just was, uh, it was okay. Yeah. And th- and then you you know, kind of like what they were trying to do with Philip Rivers, you're like this. This dude doesn't look like he could throw past fifteen yards. <laughs> it's so true. He's that weird motion. What was so what's what's sad about the Andrew Luck era is like Peyton Manning. He, they they were so good and Luck was so good, but he just got annihilated because they had yeah. no line. He gets hurt. He retires, and now you guys have had like this great line for the last couple of years. And if you're like, if Andrew Luck could have been behind that line, have you seen the guard? That guy what's that guy's name? Quentin Nelson. He he. It's he destroys people. Yes, that's a bad man. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, anyway, who's your basketball team? We didn't talk about this. I'm a Pacers fan. So, you're fully yeah, I'm a fan. Ba- yeah. Okay, Reggie Miller from your youth. Reggie thing. Miller, man. I, I remember game six, you know, Reggie's hitting the fadeaway on, on Michael Jordan off the push off. And, and it was a push off, but it was good. It was good. <laughs> so, I was a, I grew up, I might be the only New Jersey Nets fan you've ever met, but also I was in Knicks country. And so uh, I remember very well where I was watching Reggie Miller and the uh, the Spike Lee game at Madison yeah, Square yeah. Garden. That that yeah. guy, Reggie Miller's good. Oh man, he 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 came with the cutthroat. He came ready. Yes, and and I I do have to say, Brian, that you are officially the only New Jersey Nets fan that I've ever met in my life. <laughs> they don't even exist. I don't anymore. even think. Yeah, I don't even think that there are New Jersey Nets fans anymore. It's so true. It was like I grew up. Everyone was either most people were Nick fans, but because that was the heyday of the Knicks, that was Ewing, Starks, all those guys. Uh, but yeah, Nets. I was like Drazen Petrovic and Derek Coleman, and anyway, there were not many of us. Let's put it that way. There Derek were not Coleman. many. Of us. There's your uh, there's your sports update. Maybe Russell Wilson by the next time we host together, he'll be in a in a Bears uniform. So, uh, this being our last segment, I did want to ask you about your passion and your passion specifically. Uh, for the multi-ethnic church. And uh, a lot of people talk about, um, you know, oh, the multi-ethnic church. That's what the church should be. That's what it should be. That's what it, there's very few people doing the work. And I would say you guys are trying in the Chicagoland area to do the work. Uh, Help, help our listeners who maybe didn't listen last time you were on or haven't heard us talk about it. Just kind of define the multi-ethnic church and help people understand the value of it and the difficulty. Oh, man. That's that's I don't think I got time to do yeah, that in yeah. this short span of uh, of length that we have. But uh, one of the one of the just the the values of the multi ethnic church, and this is when I talk about multi ethnic church, I'm talking about people with different expressions and cultural backgrounds coming together uh, who love and follow Jesus Christ. And uh, one of the things that's distinctive uh, that I would say about a multi ethnic church is that there's not going to be one culture that mm-hmm. kind of supersedes. Uh, the the worship gathering experience or the church yes. itself experience, and so I think that.
that traditionally, like when people talk about the multi-ethnic church, they think about uh, doing church the same way that they've done it yeah. while having some different colors in the room. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we're, you know, trying to do something that's distinctly different from that. And one of the incredible benefits of that is that like you, this, this political dichotomy that, that, that this political polarization that's yep. happening, yep. proximity breeds uh, empathy. Hmm. And oh, that's a good line right there. And I think that it's really hard. Um, and this is just this is just my my personal uh, thought. It's really hard to understand somebody who's different than you mm-hmm. without being in proximity to them. That's right. And so, um, man, it, it's just vitally important. One of the things that I lament about even the city of Chicago, right, is is just that like. It's so segregated. Even even when you come out to the suburbs, I'm like, man, I didn't know that it was possible to be in the in the sphere of a, 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 a world city and never have had a minority friend mm-hmm. like that blows my my mind mm-hmm. uh, because I grew up on the northwest side of Indianapolis and my high school and everything that I ever was a part of was was always mixed yeah, uh, with yeah. a, a lot of different people. And so, but, but what the multi-ethnic church does, I think that is so incredible is that um, it brings different people together where now we're having a con- it's a different conversation, right? It's yes. kind of like on social media where you get on the algorithm and you get the same stuff mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you're friends with all the same people. <laughs> yes. um, and so it just kind of like fosters this sort of like perspective, That's this right. one perspective. Um, but, but it's like when you get in the multi-ethnic space, the algorithm is broken, hmm. and now you just get the news. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that's—I I guess that's—that's that's the way that I like to think about it. And then, uh, you know, it comes with so many challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Watson uh, said earlier that um, you know it's almost like you can't—you can't remove the egg after you've baked the cake. That was a good line. And. Um, and there's just that reality for uh, a lot of people who uh, don't recognize their own culture or don't recognize or acknowledge history and don't uh, or maybe they weren't taught history. And um, and, and so you're, you're always having to consider the other. Yeah. Um, and, and, and yet, Brian. That sounds a lot like Philippians chapter two. <laughs> oh, now, if you're going to bring the Bible into it. You know? <laughs> yeah, man. So it's like one of those things where you like you get frustrated, but then you're like, actually, I think this is what I'm called to do. Yeah. This is a part of my spiritual formation that's happening right yeah. now, uh, um, a- which is just it, it kind of creates awe um, for God and what, what he's doing in the world. And um, and so it's it's one of those things where you wake up in the morning, and you say, this is going to glorify God. This mm-hmm. is the beatific vision yeah. that ultimately we're going to see, and we're working for uh, to ultimately to see that happen here on earth as it is in heaven. That's a great word. I wanted to end that way for that exact reason. So, Steve, I appreciate you uh, sharing. Uh, it's our guest co-host for the last two days, Steve Coble, uh, Renewal Church of Chicago. Real fast as we close, where uh, remind people where they can find Renewal Church of Chicago. Yeah, RenewalChicago.com. Um, and then we're just on the near northwest side. So if you know where Brian and I were talking yesterday, if you know where Wicker Park is, mm-hmm. we're just south of Wicker Park, 
just off of the division exit, uh, right by the blue line. So if you're coming by train or by uh, by car, we are just north of the United Center, just south of Wicker Park on the near northwest side of the city of Chicago. Awesome, Steve. It's been my pleasure to have you in, man. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, all of you who are listening, join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6. For Steve Coble, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life.